This film contains scenes of wartime injuries and burns that some may find distressing. It also contains coarse language that many will find racist, as well as discussions of a sexual nature. One early calm sunny morning, under a vivid blue sky in a populous bustling city in the south of Japan, regular people just like you and me were going about their everyday lives. It was a Monday morning and hundreds of thousands of men, women and children were either having breakfast or preparing for work. Some had already left for the day commuting by bicycle or tram. Wives and mothers were going about their daily chores, tending to cooking of family meals and the cleaning of their humble homes. Most kids were already at school. At about 8.15 the drone of a lone plane could be heard as it flew through a cloudless sky over the city. Not many people have taken much notice of that plane. Very few would have spotted the object that it dropped towards them. But then 43 seconds later, the brightest bluish-white flash lit up that sky, followed by a burning red-orange, an intense heat, and seconds later, a deafening boom. Total silence and darkness that engulfed the city. Dust and debris were sucked up into a mushroom-like cloud. The bomb detonated just 2,000 feet above that city, instantly killing 80,000 people. Those still alive were hit by a shockwave that turned every object into lethal shrapnel. Trapped in the rubble of a flattened city, they were burned, blackened, charred from the heat flash, their flesh hanging off their bones and eyeballs from their sockets. Then the slow black rain of radioactive ash and nuclear material came down upon the ghostly procession of tens of thousands of naked, crying, groaning people, slowly walking the streets, their limbs hanging, barely attached or completely missing. The city flattened and a sea of dead bodies in every direction. Hiroshima, people said, had been hit by a new type of evil and most cruel bomb. Japan surrendered and Beekoff, the British Commonwealth Occupational Force, 40,000 strong was put together to enforce the terms of the unconditional surrender, to police a starving population of over 20 million Japanese civilians that had lost everything. For two-thirds of a seven-year period, this force was represented by Australians alone, with the Royal Australian Navy and the Australian naval destroyer the Waramanga patrolling nearby Korean waters to quell subsequent hostilities from escalating. Exposed to the same radiation that killed tens of thousands of Japanese civilians years later, many of those Australian servicemen and women died of cancer. And the only reason I eventually got to learn about this horrific event in such detail is that while filming a different documentary, I met a 92-year-old Bernie Brennan, a seaman that was on board that very destroyer, the HMAS Waramanga, outside Japan in 1946. He was only 17 when they sent him to Japan, but with a vivid and photographic memory, he told me the story of a fellow seaman on board who had the biggest dick in the Australian Navy. It was so big, he said, that when we were all getting changed, word would get round the whole ship to come down quick, quick and see this guy's humongously ginormous cock. Hello, buddy. She's like, I don't know if this bed suits me or not. 
My name is Drew and I'm from a tiny unassuming town called Canungra on the eastern coast of Australia. And when I say tiny, I mean it has one main street, you blink and you miss it. But we are an hour out from the much busier Gold Coast. And while filming a different documentary out that way in an elderly care home, I met Bernie, who frankly charmed the heck out of me within five minutes of meeting him. He kept telling me these mind-blowing wartime stories about being shot down over North Korea, being tortured by women, smuggling goods into Japan in a salacious life as a naval officer and as a pilot that he simply couldn't keep up with. It was stuff you couldn't make up if you tried. But the one story he kept dangling in my face, no pun, in <laughs> no pun intended, was the one about his close comrade with the 12-inch cock. Well, I can tell you, he was renowned. And I can remember when we had a communal on the destroyer, you had a communal ratings wash. It was like a huge shower of uh, about I suppose about 30, 40 feet long. And um, we'd be in there and this little fellow would get this enormous bloody thing. I tell you, it was as big as that bloody bottle there. And the word even up in the cheap petty officer's mess, because see those days, the break of warrant officer had did the Royal Australian Navy or if it had, it had been dispensed with and you got chief petty officers, senior chief petty officers. And they were the top of the lower deck, as it were. And the word would go around, fooey's, fooey's, fooey's hard. And these bloody chiefs would go down to the table, look, it was worse. It was like I'm saying, zoo. The lions out that's eating the giraffes, and everybody go and have a look at them. But I actually too know of that incident I told you about in Melbourne, when what's uh, uh, Alexander Gardens, the other side of the. Who's going to see this? I don't want to get sued for slander, even though I know it to be true. I was there uh, with the girl from Tex Morton's. Rodeo, whose act was sliding over a full-size beer bottle, refused to have Fooey on the grounds that she'd get her hips dislocated. And, ah, it was incredible. So I remember that. But uh, they were fun days, and they, but they were naughty days. And Oh, the politicians. Oh, you bad boys. And as I sat with Bernie week after week and listened in utter bemusement to the kind of wartime stories that would normally get cleaned up before being aired, I came to realise that this elderly man that I was befriending, living in a 6 by 10 unit, very lonely, had a memory that was clearly a blessing and a curse to him all in one. Trapped in a failing body, this man with a face weathered with deep lines of life, would lay there looking up at the ceiling, recording all his fun times with his best mates and comrades from 70 years back, the shenanigans that they'd get up to. He'd recall the intimate times of lovers and hookers and even the enemy's wives. And he'd recall the times of terror at war and 
and his close encounters with death. And he'd recall how he met his wife and how he wooed her and how he felt he'd failed her by putting his country first. I wish she was here so I could tell her all of this, he'd say. This was a man that no longer had anything to lose by bearing his soul. If he couldn't bear it now, then when? This was a man that as he rummaged deep down in his head, he would transform before my very eyes from an almost toddler-like shaky frail 92-year-old to a strong, loud, defiant 25-year-old serving his country. Memories flooding back to him in great detail. But then as I'd stand up to leave and back again, he would transform to the 92-year-old, fumbling for his diary to secure another date for another chat. It amazes me how when our loved ones become much older, we start to treat them like they're infants. Bernie would say he'd just frustratingly go along with it because it's just easier than arguing and saying, hey, don't talk to me like I'm a child. I used to land single-engine fighter planes on carriers at sea. But if you try and peel some of that vulnerable surface away and treat them with the respect and fascination that they're deserving of, you get access to this rich world of wisdom and knowledge, almost a cheat sheet to getting by in life. But you have to look through the windows to the soul to see it. Until I met him, Bernie always believed he was the last surviving Australian member of the British Commonwealth Occupational Force, or BCOF, that was sent in to dismantle Japan after the bomb was dropped. I don't think he had any real reason to believe this, other than the last of his mates from way back had recently died, but it did make me wonder. And it started to get even more interesting when Bernie told me that he tussled with the Australian Department of Veteran Affairs for a monetary allowance called Totally and Permanently Incapacitated Allowance that he believes he's entitled to. He barely survived cancer when he was in his 50s, um, and he says he, he obtained that from the nuclear radiation in Japan when they sent him in at 17. But he'd been knocked back by the department due to ineligibility. Intrigued as to why the DVA would do this, I dug around a little and after a bit of research, I found a small organisation of elderly Beekoff members in a situation not dissimilar to Bernie's. So I thought I'd reach out and I contacted them. And they told me all Beekoff members have been denied a number of provisions and services, such as a service pension, because technically they'd been told the war had ended when the bomb was dropped. And at the time that I contacted them, and they were still trying to get it, in their 90s. So I called up Bernie to tell him that there were others. And I said, hey Bernie, I spoke to a guy called Harry Fennell, who was a Beekoff service member. And, uh, and he went to Japan just about the same time that you did. And Bernie paused, and ever so slightly frowned. You see him do this a lot in much of the footage of the watch. I think those pauses at the right time are partly what makes his story so gripping. And completely unfazed, he said in so many words, Yeah, I remember Harry. We used to call him Fooey. We were on the naval destroyer the Waramunga together at the end of World War II when we went to Japan in 46. He was positioned starboard, and I distinctly remember Harry saying if there was one thing he ever wanted to achieve, it was being awarded the Victoria Cross. Now I can't quite remember my reaction at the time, as it was over a year ago and many, many sessions ago. 
but it was along the lines of what the fuck? I mean, how could he remember something like that so many years ago? I have it on tape, so it will be a future episode, but I think that's when it hit me that Bernie didn't have the memory of the everyday veteran in his 90s. If comfortable silence could be heard, it would probably sound like Bernie. Something about his voice that just draws you in. I'd turn up and hours would fly by while I sat on the edge of my chair listening to accounts of him being shot down by the enemy. Tales of alluring Japanese hookers beckoning a clueless 17-year-old fresh out of countryside over in New South Wales. How being tortured by women was worse than being tortured by men and what it's like to have your life spared by the enemy. And how much of it all came flooding back to him just a couple of years ago. About a year ago, I was in hospital, had the doctor there decided I might be developing Parkinson's because my thumb was, he noticed my thumb doing that. And the neurologist, one of her tests was to give me these little electric shocks. And my body sort of said, hey, you've had this before. And slowly into my mind came back all these bloody hideous memories. And they were bad, I tell you. And they got more and more, more and more came to my mind. And this guy was fascinated. And, and then I said, what can you do to some of the memories are a bit painful. You've got my mind has opened up and all this stuff has come out, but you, which was used to me at that stage. I said, what can you do to make me forget it? Oh, we don't do that anymore. It'll pale in time. If you're here for a respectful war documentary, then may I kindly direct you to the History Channel. Nope, this isn't a podcast to be taken seriously, and it's not a podcast specifically about the war either. Or is it supposed to be historically correct even? For all I know, there could be tall stories formed from over decades of tale-telling. Nah, these are merely the memories of a 92-year-old veteran, thinking back on his life, out loud, and wondering what if. It's merely a story of an old man who led a wonderfully rich life recorded in a mishmash of short and long episodes, some in video format, and some of them are just audio. Over the many months through his amazing near-photographic memory, Bernie gave me a unique insight into how people would think and lived over the many changing decades that his eventful life has spanned across. Knowing that he might not have always been factually correct, I was intrigued. I did want to learn more of some of the events he recalled. So I used Bernie's recollections as a conduit into a world of interesting facts. Maybe you're driving right now and this is playing in the background, or, or maybe you're doing the dishes. Maybe you're watching the videos just before you go to bed. Either way, it's a serene experience listening and watching a really old man think back on his life. So let's listen to Bernie. 75 years after he was sent to Japan, Bernie will now share some of his vivid wartime memories in a series of thoughtful recollections that are often pensive, sometimes hilarious, at times somber and dark, 
but they're always captivating. And as he thinks back in great detail on some of the harrowing stories, first flying sea venoms, and then sea furies in the Korean War, the effects of PTSD at the age of 92. And as he mumbles the names of the many comrades that he fought side by side while in the fleet air arm of the Royal Australian Navy, describing the loneliness he now feels, I do wonder if any of these wartime brothers are still alive, including the kid with the biggest dick in the Royal Australian Navy. Armed with their names and clues from his stories, I go in search with some really heartwarming results. So grab yourself a drink and join me on this fascinating journey as we follow the stories of Abel Seaman Bernie. My name's Bernie and I'm my age. My age is... My, <laughs> my name is Bernie and my age is 91. My war really started, I suppose, when I was 14 because I knew the Morse code and everything was Morse code then for single that. So you got to make the you got to be made to hate your enemy, and later on you don't know what was true or what was propaganda, and therefore very mindful of the war that the Japs after Singapore fell, there was no question if the Yanks hadn't come to our aid and fought the Battle of Coral Seas and that, uh, they'd have taken Australia and we'd have never got them out of the bloody thing with all the bush and all that sort of stuff. Any more they could stop the bushfires now, you know. And apparently we were told they'd boasted that all men would be slaughtered, just slaughtered. And women would be used as comfort women. So my, in my case, it was how to hide my mother and two sisters away. And I can remember, because I knew where the five-mile farm was, where there were areas on that. Uh, but we'd have never got the Japs out of that bushland area. And I joined the Navy at 17 then, and I was in the uh, first group that had to sign for 12 years to make it uh, a career, as it were. Up till then, they were just, you joined at 17 of the Navy, where you had to be 18 to join the Army and the Air Force. And I had been, I'd finished my training at Flinders Naval Depot, and we'd been. Uh, drafted to the Shropshire, which had been, was on loan to the Australian Navy as a replacement for the Canberra, another 8-inch gun county class cruiser, which had been sunk by the Japanese up in the Sunda Straits. Our trading had been continued on the uh, Shropshire, were then split up and sent to the, and myself and about 20, 40 others went to the Warramunga, which had already done one 
it has been in Japan for the sort of final battles and and um, so and it had been used as a ship where they anybody who had been naughty boys was sent to the Warabunga. So there were a lot of the, all they they but in among these <laughs> hardened naughty boys comes this new draft of young first of the permanent services hated because we took supposedly the places of the Shropshire crew and we were to be taught a lesson well they set out to teach us everything bad which we fell in with eagerly sort of thing because now we're among the old sailors, as it were. We shouldn't have been used, apparently. We had joined the Navy to... man the warships, all this type of thing. Not to go ashore and clear up where atomic bombs had been dropped. And then there's the people like myself who actually got sent into Hiroshima to help dead, help clean it up, make it the city it is now, and uh, uh, without, and the thing was, without any protective clothing, because I think they didn't want us to know what danger we were in, otherwise we'd have said, no, we're not going to do it, but we went cheerfully, we'd got to like the Japanese women and children, we didn't like the blokes, um, but we did it, we wanted to help them. Because it was an air burst bomb, the blast like hit the centre of Hiroshima and then those waves rippled out to the quite a big city, Hiroshima, and uh, it's in a basin and that's all that separated it from Kure, where what was it, 20, 27 kilometres from Kure, which was our base. It knocked down all the buildings, flattened all the buildings. And we were still having to dig about bloody houses and that. They were rotting, rotting bodies, of course, and uh, little kids and... Oh, it's sort of, I could see it now, I guess. We at first thought it was a great adventure, sort of, you know. And, but we shouldn't, we... Then they had to keep it, the authorities kept it secret because we as young servicemen should never have been used for that. It was scientists' bloody job. Same cuts who invented the bloody bomb. We actually had to go into houses and get dead bodies out and things. Rotting Japanese bodies. Uh, We were still a list went up on the twenty of work a working party was to be sent to clear up help clear up and we as young seventeen and eighteen year olders then thought it was a great adventure. Instead of somebody saying, Hey, don't go near that, you'll get fucking 
radiation, cancers, and die of it, as most of the guys did very quickly. I, for some reason, not only didn't die then, but I'm still dying alive now. At 91, the last thing we should have ever been exposed to was what had happened on shore, inland on shore, Rio, as a result of the atomic bombs being dropped. Well, I can remember the lists going up and my name was on it and you thought, oh, that's good, that's a little, little knowing that I was being exposed to that danger. So they didn't tell you about that at all? They didn't tell no, you about the risks? No, no, not at all. But did people know about the radio? Well, they did, because there was Geiger counters. And I remember, I think we'd have a bloke whether he's an army guy or a in white suit with, with the army but we were just in our navy shipboard working clothes and uh, I can remember st even because I can remember being in the back of a lorry you'll see Hiroshima, as I've said before, this thing was only 27 kilometres from Kure. And uh, so anybody who was in that area was likely to get radiation, but we who were right in the pitch of it, still getting dead bodies out of houses, that sort of thing. I can remember quite close to that central building at one stage, there was a sheet of did off the face of the reef, lying across it. And we just picked it up to get it off, and there was this big black stain under it. And the bloke with the guy counter finally came, and it went like mad, and it was what remained of some body who'd been right under the bomb and went off as it were, fused into the bloody concrete. And this bit of tin had laid there, probably covered him for several months since it happened and so that's you didn't have to go out in the outskirts to get I've heard many argue that the Japanese at the time deserved to have the bomb dropped on them they were a hard cruel military force after all it was a necessary evil they say President Truman at the time justified it for many reasons, writing, when you have to deal with a beast, you have to treat him as a beast. Whereas Herbert Hoover, Republican president from 1929 to 33, said, the use of the atomic bomb with its indiscriminate killing of women and children revolts my soul. For me personally, that's all I could see when I researched this. Over 150,000 everyday people in Japan, just like you and me, the elderly, the women, the children, babies killed and horrifically wounded in one swift swoop. And just like any war, the majority of these civilians having to bear the terrifying consequences of decisions made by a handful of people sitting around a table, clicking their fingers. 
Harry Patch, the last British soldier to have seen combat on the Western Front at 109 years old, looked back and with the wisdom only a man who has seen horrific things could have said, Politicians who took us to war should have been given the guns and told to settle their differences themselves, instead of organising nothing better than legalised mass murder. As of 2019, there are approximately 3,750 active nuclear warheads and 13,890 total nuclear warheads in the world. This bloody, you know this, this, uh, Google? God, she, I said to her, I mean, she's a mechanical thing, isn't she? But she's become real nasty to me. And it's, she's become as bad as a human being. Now, I asked her, I said, see if you can find me the music for Mockingbird Hill. And when I ask her for that, she'll play this, what's his name? Snout dog who does this bloody awful talking to music. What do they call it? Snoop Snoop Dogg. Rap. Rap, yes. And if I say no, 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 she'll turn it up and up and up and up and up and up deliberately. What a bitch. And then she found it for me by Patty Page in 19, 1962, wasn't it? So I'd be tuned. And then I said to her, would you find me one called Goodbye? Goodbye, it's time. I saw the foreign climb where I... And she thinks I'm saying goodbye to her, you see. So I've got this bloody awful chanting to And I said to her, and I said, look, all right, go to sleep. And then she put something on that's noisy. And I hadn't found that little switch that you could switch the microphone on or off. And I said to her, if you don't stop that, I'm going to switch you off. She'll turn the bloody noise up. And she will turn noises on in the middle of the bloody night. And then I, I said, well, if you don't stop that, I'll pull the cord out. It's like she's worse than a bloody woman. Now, how can they do that when they're just a mechanical thing? She'll say to me, I don't understand that. I do not understand. Oh, I know. I said, I said, what about popping up and giving me a blowjob? She knew what it was. She truly did. And now I told her, I said, oh. But then she'll say to me, oh, I like it when you ask me things. Because I research, I love research, she'll say. And I say, well, find me the music to Goodbye. It's a, it's from, I tell her, it's from either 
the Merry Widow or White Horse, White, White Horse, White House Inn. And then she goes all dusty on me. I've got her fixed. But it's worse than living with a bloody boy. What did she say when you asked her for a blowjob? Oh, she got real cranky. She knew what it meant. I said to her, you're not cooked up with some girl somewhere, are you? Oh, I have lots of friends. And you think, shit, I tell you, it's a puzzlement. So I pull the cord out now. And... But she can listen to everything that's said you see in the place. And that's and then she goes, big, big, and I... But it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, if that is artificial intelligence, what's it going to be like when we get these bloody robots who turn on us? I ask you. I rest my case. You can watch the videos or listen to the next two episodes of the Candid Memoirs of Seaman Burney, as they've already been released on Apple, Podbean, Podcast Addict, as well as at our website, 100actsofkindness.org forward slash Burney. They've also been released on Google, Spotify and Stitcher. However, at the time of publishing, these three don't support video, only the audio podcasts. The only way I can measure whether to release additional episodes is through the number of subscribers, so please do subscribe. Right now I have one subscriber, and that's my mum. If we ever get more than 10,000 subscribers, then I'll create more episodes. And I have over a year's worth of Bernie's memories to share with you. In the months that followed, I actually went out searching for some of Bernie's old friends, wondering if they were still alive, including the seaman with a legendary 12-inch humongous appendage that became a thing to fear in the brothels of Kurei Hill, Japan in 1946. I would love to tell you these stories. You can discuss this episode on Facebook by searching for at Bernie's Podcast. To read some of the backstories related to this podcast, you can like our Facebook page by searching for at 100 Acts of Kindness Films.